From Suffolk County, New York, this program is sponsored in part by WUSB, Long Island's largest non-commercial free-form radio station. Check them out at 90.1 FM or online at WUSB.FM. Previously on Writers Come Ice Cream. My name is Howard Gunston, and I want to be a writer when I grow up. I got a bad feeling about this. Unfortunately, I don't feel it is quite right for my list. Star Wars, The Rebirth. And yet you don't feel comfortable referring to yourself as a writer. I haven't developed myself as a writer yet to have a book where I could say, this is a style all my own. This is complete and characters you've never met before, you've never seen before. I mean, this is a story that follows a pretty uh, standard plot. And like anything, you develop, even professionals, and I'm not one, obviously, you develop your own sense through experience. So that's what I want to keep moving towards, having something that's truly my own. I wrestle with the same thing, but I don't have a book with but, my name on it. When, when do you think you'll feel comfortable saying, yeah, yeah I'm at, uh, I write? After book number two. I never imagined myself publishing a book. So I've got to know, what's it take to be a writer? This is Writers, Ice Cream, a monthly craft talk where a pair of writers risk brain freeze to answer one question. What's it take to be a writer? Listener, in the last episode, Carl Safina shared with me his writing process. And for all the answers he gave me about his structure, about his research, about his day, I still left the studio with questions. Profound questions. I mean, on the one hand, there's Carl's book, which is literally a lifeline for animals being hunted to extinction. And then, on the other hand, there's my book. Milan Jansa was not having a good day. His small studio apartment overlooking one of the many hilly vistas of Slovenia had lost power during the night, completely killing his alarm clock. Well, it's my wannabe book. Artie's reading from an early draft. So early, I didn't fully know who I was writing about. Was this Jansa guy going to be a main character or a supporting character? Maybe he was just a point of entry and wouldn't even make the final cut? All I knew when I wrote these words was that I wasn't writing a story that would save lives. My goal was much more basic. I wanted to entertain. My story would be a thriller. But there's certainly no shortage of thrillers out there. Who am I to elbow some room on a shelf? Maybe I should just settle into the day job and be done with it. But then I met an author who once wrestled with a similar bout of insecurity, who once left her house determined to get a real job, only to return home certain of one insurmountable fact. She was born to write. My boots are smeared with mud thrown back by the baby carriage's wheels. It is close to noon, and Fred's morning class will let out just as I round the duck pond. With luck, we will catch him before he heads back to his office in the barn building. This is Susan Scarf Merrill reading from her second novel, Shirley. Black ice, catch myself without losing control of Natalie in her carriage, and giggle. 
I feel life everywhere. The former fiction editor of TSR, the Southampton Review, Susan was a teacher of mine at Stony Brook University, where she's also the director of the Southampton Writers Conference. Past me, calling to one another with insouciance born of anticipation. Life, I'm in it. Shirley is the tale of a young woman, Rose, who comes to live with the novelist Shirley Jackson. For me, Susan's novel represents the dream, a goal beyond being published or writing fiction, but of writing something that feels new and ambitious, of writing something that exudes confidence and craft. I had to know how a novel like this even begins to take shape. How did Susan move from her first novel published 14 years prior to her sophomore hit in 2014? That was the flukiest, flukiest thing. I, um, so I really had sort of stalled. And in um, 2006, I think, uh, so that's, yeah, six years I'd written another book. It didn't sell. Um, and I was really, uh, I mean, it, not even that it didn't sell. Like, my own agent didn't want to take it to the market. I mean, it was, it was not, it didn't work. I just had sort of lost my way and um, I'm not I'm not sure what that was in hindsight but it was a really important period of failure for me um, but uh, we were at a dinner party that and uh, I was sitting next to the person the guy who was at that point the head of the Bennington writing seminars their low residency MFA program and we were talking about a project that my husband was doing, he's an architect, and we were talking about a project he was doing, which was a renovation of this very huge, old, meaningful, very meaningful estate in Sag Harbor that um, was very important to the community that this building be uh, rebuilt, and, um, and there was a lot of attachment to it. And I, because I was not writing, did as a favor for the client a, um, a history of the house. And during the process of researching the history of this house and writing this um, odd little private document for them, uh, we started to joke about the idea that you could only have certain kinds of murders in a big old Victorian house and other kinds of murders would take place in a modern house. And so we were that at this- a great conversation, uh, yeah. first of all, right yeah, there. Yeah, it was really, it was really fun. That's and where you never want to get called as a character witness. Did they yeah. ever joke about murder? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But, but so we're at this dinner and we start talking to Liam Rector, who was at that point the head of the sem writing seminars. And he says, I want you guys to come up and give a talk at the next residency about houses in fiction and and um, the meaning of you know of architecture and houses. So Jim was going to talk about um, this. I'm really breaking it down to its simplest form, but the idea that you can either that houses are either temples or fortresses, and that the psychology of those two different kinds of design. And I talked about. Um, certain short stories that I really love, as you know, because you were in my class. I, you know, I'm obsessed with a lot of, uh, of the, uh, with a very wide range of uh, short fiction. And I, um, and I wanted to talk about Henry James's The Jolly Corner, which is a story of his that I really love, about a ghost uh, who, the ghost of a man's alternate self who chases him through his childhood home. It's a really great story. And so while we were waiting to go on, I sat through a couple of the graduate students giving their graduation lectures, and I um, 
and I, uh, I was like, I want to do this. I want to go to grad school. And so I was pretty old, but I applied on the, in the car on the way home. I filled out the application. And so we gave that talk in the June residency, and I was there for the next residency wow. in January of 07, I think. And so I graduated in January of 09. And, um, but in my first, I'm, this is so long, I'm sorry I'm taking so long, but in my first uh, semester, my uh, instructor was a wonderful novelist named Rachel Paston, who has since become a really good friend. And she said to me, what do you want to write? And I said, well, I really am interested in um, domestic fiction, but with a kind of a, I don't know, magic. I, didn't, I don't know what it is. That's sort of what I want to do. And she said, have you ever read Shirley Jackson? And I had as a teenager, uh, but I had forgotten her. And I went home and I read We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And then I read The Haunting of Hill House. And by the end of the semester, I had read everything that Jackson had written. And when I went back the next semester and had a new instructor, that instructor said, what were you reading last semester? And I said, oh, I've been reading a lot of Shirley Jackson. I'm completely obsessed with her. And she said to me, well, you know, she lived here. Her husband taught at Bennington. and." Um, I went into the library and I started looking up facts about them and I talked to the librarian. I realized I had been walking past Shirley Jackson's house every day when I went to get my coffee. That um, the coffee that I was buying, I was buying at Powers Market, which is where she was when she got the idea for the lottery. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and I was sort of living in her world. And so then as I started to think about what my graduation lecture would be, I, uh, I went down to the Library of Congress and I started reading their papers, her letters and his letters. Their, you know, there are files and files and files in the Library of Congress of both Shirley Jackson's and Stanley Edgar Hyman's. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at all. I contacted the family. Maybe I would write a biography. I, um, I, uh, I made. Uh, then I thought, you know, well, I'm really not. I'm really not the kind of person. I don't want to. I don't want to be researching in that way. I really want to be writing fiction. And then I thought, well, I'll write a sh searching for Shirley Jackson kind of thing. Me and my love of Shirley Jackson, and I'll talk about the biography, but I'll also weave in some memoir of my own. And I didn't really want to do that. Um, and I haven't really had that kind of life, you know. So, so then one day I was walking in the woods right near here with Waffle and. Um, and I was with my friend Martha Cooley, who is the novelist who originally got me to Bennington because of, that was the dinner party. And um, I said to her, I just don't know how to tell this story. And she said, well, what about somebody who's living in the house with them? And I remembered in the journals that Shirley had said in the last year of her life, oh, so-and-so was staying with us, so-and-so and so-and-so were staying with us at this point. And I thought, oh my god. Of course, that's what I'll do. I'll put, I'll put um, someone in the house. And I immediately thought of my mom, who had had a kind of a strange and um, difficult childhood. Uh, she grew up very poor in Center City, Philadelphia. And I called her up and I said, can I write about you? And she said, absolutely. And so like the first sentence of Shirley is about my mother, like by the second paragraph she had disappeared and Rose was there. And, um, uh, but somehow having this permission to take this uh, 
to take my mother's life made me not need to use it. I don't know. Um, and so that's how I came to Shirley, which, so it was really, um, it was a bunch of flukes that began to feel very meaningful as if the project really wanted to be written. Maybe she wanted me to write it. Listener, let me hit pause here for a moment. This interview with Susan is from April of 2016 and was the first time we had taken writers, comma, ice cream on the road. Well, the first successful time. But as we sat in her backyard and chatted about her path to Shirley, I was struck by that book she had to abandon, the courage it must have taken to accept a loss on that story in search of an even better one. The type of courage you need to be a writer. Did you always want to be a writer? Is that something that you figured out later? Oh, I mean, I think very, very early on, I, I knew I was going to be a writer. I mean, it was sort of the most romantic thing a person could be. Um, Do you remember the earliest thing that you wrote? I mean, the earliest thing that I remember writing was a, a short story, which was probably um, five lines long, and it began, she rocked in her chair knitting. As she rocked, she thought of her children and their children. How would they live in the world she had left for them. I don't know. I was probably in third or fourth grade. And there's like maybe two more sentences. That is I've, great. And I have, I mean, and I still remember <laughs> it because I was also, I saw it maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. And I was really impressed by how neat my handwriting was, <laughs> which is not true at all now. Now I could be a doctor, but, um, but no. So I, I mean, really young, I wanted to be a writer. My mom's a writer. And, you know, somehow that was, part of my vision of what a woman's life could be. She could be a writer and, you know, work at home and, and have like, and, you know, be a, be a good and engaged parent and still, you know, produce art. And um, so I don't think I ever had a, a moment where I wanted to be a, you know, a ballerina or a firefighter or a, you know, or, president or anything else I just always wanted to be a writer though I think at various times in my 20s I was scared of the idea and I didn't write that much in my 20s or at least I didn't think of what I was doing as writing I worked I did I worked in a PR firm and and I wrote a little bit you know I always I think wrote for myself but um, I didn't I didn't think of myself as a writer. I thought of myself who was uh, someone who was in marketing, you know, and um, and yet I always wanted to be a writer, you know. And, you know, if I jump forward into my, oh God, um, must be mid 40s, you know, at a time when my career had really stalled and I was writing but not selling and I was having a pretty, uh, tough time and feeling really defeated and I remember one um, at one point I said to my husband you know I'm just gonna stop being a, a writer and I'm gonna go get a job and I remember actually driving to King Cullen <laughs> and like I was sitting outside the grocery store and I was about to go in and there's a Banana Republic to the left of it at that time and I thought I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna get a job I just want to have a job and be around people and and um, and I just couldn't bring myself to get out of the car because I really I don't 
it's you know people always say oh I don't know how to do anything else but write and it, it's not that I know how to do I'm I think I could be pretty competent at a lot of things but I really like the kind of half world that I live in where I mean I live in the real world and then I have this other world which is an, an active world of the imagination and I just I couldn't give it up even though I wanted to even though it didn't feel healthy to be doing what I was doing and failing at it so badly you know um, I still wanted to do it and do what she did. It may have been a tough journey getting from novel one to novel two, but once Susan found the right topic, she latched on and never let go. The question that I really began the project with, which was how did people who wrote the love letters that I saw between Shirley and Stanley when they were 18, 19, 20 years old and just getting to know each other as students at Syracuse and so erudite and smart and funny, and how did they end up having this marriage which was kind of torture. So I was really intrigued by that question of what had happened to their marriage and clearly he was her best and most important editor up to the time that she died and, um, and they were so connected but not always happy. And I was really, um, I was really sort of puzzled and intrigued by that and and also puzzled and intrigued by the disappearance of Paula Weldon and also puzzled and intrigued by why Shirley was so interested in the disappearance of the two Victorian school teachers. Um, and somehow, I didn't ever say, um, oh, this book is gonna be shaped like this or it's gonna be shaped like that until I had um, really had a full draft. So the first draft really just came out like, you know, you know, vomit, you know, it's just like very, like with lots of placeholders and lots of um, things I didn't know. But I, once I saw the essential shape and I knew that I was uh, writing to the, you know, to the end of, to you know, I was writing Rose's obsession with Shirley and her need to find a kind of mother figure and that that was gonna be imposed on the life, and that's really what I figured out in the first draft. Then I was able to, as you know, I really love reverse outlining, um, to outline what I'd done and look at um, the shape of what I'd made and try to figure out how to balance and rebalance the story so that it held up better as a, as a shape. So in a way, the shape came, the shape was phase two or three of the process. Which took longer for you in that process? Was it the shape as part of the reverse outlining part or was it the initial writing part or was it the research part with the time that you spent? Because you, I mean, you actually, I mean, you not only knew the house that she lived in, but you knew the differences between the house that she lived in right off of campus versus where she was actually living in 64. Right, 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 yeah. No, I um, I did a huge amount of research. Um, and it was lucky that, you know, I had to write this grad school lecture. And so I gave a lecture on, on her life and their marriage and the love letters. And I was sort of processing all of that stuff. So probably from 2008 to 2010, she was somebody I was thinking about all the time, but I didn't have, I wasn't necessarily writing her. I was mm -hmm. writing about her. I, wrote a couple of short stories that sort of, 
I posited a, her point of view and things, but they weren't very good. I was more not, re I was not really sure what I was doing. And then I, um, and then maybe another year struggling with the question of is this a biography or not a biography. And then the actual writing of the novel, the first draft, I'd be surprised if it took six months. And then the restructuring and the um, reworking and the trying to figure out what the shape should be, I think was probably a year and a half. Wow. Yeah, and I think that's, so I've just done the same thing again where I've just finished the first draft of something and um, and I was like, oh, I'm done, <laughs> you know, but I'm really just done figuring out who the people are and what I want them to do. And now I'm in the process of starting to write the book that I figured out in the, in the kind of, you know, just blurbled out version. And so I think maybe that's my process is to do a very messy, emotion laden, not neat, not shaped mm. search for character and then, um, and to kind of nail down the events and, um, and then to really re reconfigure. Listener, now that we've gotten a sense of Susan's writing process, it's time to see it in action. We present The Ice Cream Challenge. So, um, all season long, uh, mm -hmm. which is nice about this, by the way, is that we're not doing Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's has sort of dominated the season because it's just oh, it easy has. to get from the, from the uh -huh. supermarket. Um, so the idea here mm -hmm. is we're not going to, um, we're going to invite listener to play along mm -hmm. in terms of like how they might describe the flavor that you're having. And so mm -hmm. we would love for them to hear you describe the uh -huh. flavor that you're having. Okay. So you're eating mint chocolate chip. Well, it obviously starts with cold. Mm. And it's very creamy. Wait, the dog is about to drink my water. Hold on. It's hot out. And yeah. Waffle wants. Yeah. Hold on. Waffle. Oh, okay. you're coming over now. This is the first time I'm petting you all day today. There's a slightly granular quality to it. Uh, but it's, I mean, not ice crystals, but just a nice feeling of, of graininess. Uh, I can taste the mint. There's always a slightly chalky flavor to mint chip which I happen to really like. Uh, the chips aren't all that large. Well, let me see if I can get a bigger one. You got a good spoonful there. Yeah. It's kind of a cross between dark and milk chocolate on mm. the darker side. Um, and pretty smooth and quite sweet. But the ice cream's not incredibly sweet. The ice cream is just a nice, has a really nice balance of... Um, kind of, uh, of, of, of sweetness, but not too, it's not too intense. And it's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's actually not sickeningly sweet at all. There's it's something quite about nice. this that makes me feel like this, I don't know that it is, but it, to me it tastes like it's homemade ice cream. It does to me too. Yeah. I think that graininess is mm. very, it's really good. Do you have a challenge when you're writing with trying to access like, descriptive powers for taste or smell, or do they come somewhat easier for you? That's such a good question, and I'm gonna sort of not answer it, um, because, so I think the thing, the thing for me is that I, um, I'm so um, inside the character that I'm writing 
There's nothing in the bag. Yeah, it's all good. He did. Not to him. There, there's always something in the bag to waffle. <laughs> so cute. But so I think if my characters can describe things, I can. Um, but also at the same time, I, um, I find that I do a lot of place markering. So there are certain gestures I know I'm not going to keep with people drinking coffee or nodding, you know, I'm going to go back and those things, those pauses, I'm just leaving a beat there to come back and find and change, you know, and make uh, something out, make into something bigger or smaller or more appropriate. So how do you figure out what you're going to replace, like, the nod with? Mm. By something character-based. Mm. I mean, it's like, I mean, obviously everybody nods and many people drink coffee, not as many people eat ice cream, which is quite a wonderful thing. Um, but, but that, uh, but that, um, I'm I'm always looking for what's character appropriate. So that's really, that's really the thing for me. And the voice of a person is often the voice that drives the entire project. So. So I, you know, I know what somebody sees or doesn't see, or I hope that to figure out what it is that this person is capable of seeing and not seeing, and that is going to shape how the how the room works, how you know what happens in it, and what the nod turns out to be, or the glass of wine, or the cup of coffee, or the cigarette. Well, speaking of seeing, listener, it's time for our last visual prompt of the season. We shared with Susan the same prompt we've used all season long, put five minutes on the clock, and let her loose. Let's see what she came up with. Okay, okay so Susan Scarf Merrill, will you share with us your first line? Okay. You do not want to do this, I said. If you genuinely believe they were sent here to worship you, let's climb downstairs and talk to them. All right, okay. And last line? The hell? He'd never broken his ankle, and I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) And what's in between is no better. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, talk to us a little bit about how you approached this and how you got from opening line to closing line. Well, um, I... It looked like a it looked like a, a a ramp like a like a something you would try to drive down and or run down and obviously it would be difficult to do because of where it's placed um, and so I thought about who might be up on the roof and thinking that they wanted to run down it and I immediately started thinking about like when I was in like fifth grade and um, the the like the drug movie and like there there was somebody who like smoked marijuana and then jumped off a building uh, you know as oh, often okay. happens right. in in those movies and i was so i was thinking like you know oh my god you know so what and i have been uh on several occasions recently i have noticed someone that i know having a kind of a bluish dust around his or her nose, and I actually asked one of my children, what could you be snorting that was blue? And they said, uh, oh, Adderall. Sometimes people snort Adderall so that they can focus faster. And I was like, does that work? And my son said, well, for some people, not everybody. You know, some people, it makes them pretty nutty. And so 
So I was so I was thinking about the big drug movie of fifth grade and and um, and and then. I thought, well, here's an opportunity to use my new Adderall knowledge, and so <laughs> that was so that's so that's where that's where I started. And then I was thinking, well, who would be up there with uh, with the Adderall snorting person? And that was so. It's I I don't know. That was a really hard one because for me, the fact that there's no human in it and there's actually no that's a very corporate shot. So my nature would be not, I'm looking for people yeah. or for things people have done. And the reason I said, to, I said you know, that's very, this feels very sci-fi to me because I can't see any character in that except the character of bureaucracy and indifference. And mm. maybe if I thought about that shot more, I might have ended up doing, writing about bureaucrats. Okay. But... I I think it's safe to say this is our first Adderall snorting <laughs> writing prompt, which is great. You're I would like in a to category all your own. own. <laughs> a category all her own. Surely a novel is available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. For more with Susan and all our guests from the season, be sure to check out writersicecream.com, where we have extended interviews, next episode trailers, and the writing prompts from all our authors. It's also where the mystery photo will be revealed on August 20th, and where you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at hgunston. Susan Scarf Merrill, an author who proves that insecurity is surmountable, that an abandoned project doesn't equal an abandoned dream. That if the best things in life are worth fighting for, perhaps the best stories in us are no different. So where does that leave me? Are my stories really worth fighting for? That's next time on Writers, Ice Cream. Scarf Merrill, thank you for being on Writers, Ice Cream. Oh, thank you, Hallie. I'm very glad to be here. All right. So you had asked for, I think, what, it was um, salted caramel <laughs> or... It's important to have a standard. <laughs> yeah. It was salted caramel or where's my... Uh, peppermint stick. Peppermint stick. Right. Um, and so we came with neither. <laughs> because... <laughs> yeah.